Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we talk the 1986 film, She's Gotta Have It, from director Spike Lee. Sexually liberated Nola Darling resides in Brooklyn while juggling three different and eager suitors named Jamie, Greer, and Mars. Nola enjoys the best qualities of each man while not feeling entirely committed to a single one. And after their relationships with each man dismantles, Nola stays strong and confident in her philosophy. A woman can be a sexual being. She doesn't have to belong to a man and perhaps shouldn't even wish for such a thing. She's Got a Habit was filmed in 12 days on a budget of $175,000, catapulting Spike into the cinema ether and winning him a 1987 Independent Spirit Award. The film is 124 minutes long and is categorized as a comedy drama romance. The film would lay the groundwork for Spike to become one of the most prolific and independent voices in filmmaking. I'm Gabe Bienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined by veteran podcaster and editor, Alan Martindale, and tonight with special guest and budding filmmaker joining us from Los Angeles, David. Hey, David, how the hell are you, man? What's going on? Doing good. Good, good. Alan, how you doing? Dude, I'm doing good, man. I, uh, I'm hanging in there, you know? This is, this is fun. I've actually never seen a lot of Spike Lee's work, so this is actually a... Uh, kind of an introduction to me this is uh and everyone's hanging in there uh, uh just before we started rolling david was telling me he was 60 days in on this uh quarantine two month mark just passed it are you going crazy, crazy yet are you, are you are you uh pulling your hair out i think i did that maybe a couple weeks ago and maybe it'll come back here in a week or two like i'm just kind of <laughs> riding the wave man but Dude, that's all good right that's now. all you can what, what if, are what are we pushing alan where are we at oh, geez in, we're, we're in close the good to good old that. state of utah it was like march i want to say march like 11th or something 19th 19th something like that so we're what are we a month and a half yeah. two months something like that yeah yeah it's it's uh but here's the here's the fortunate thing about all of it right is that we can we have this technology like mm-hmm. we can we can we can at least communicate this way if, I mean, can yeah. you imagine like 15 years ago? I mean, this, this wasn't quite like this. The, the, the ability just to sit down with someone like I haven't seen David in over a year. probably. Yeah. So, For sure. but the, the ability to like sit down and talk is pretty cool. So I'm glad we were able to, to, to get on and David, we're glad to have you on. So tell me a little bit, tell me a little bit about, uh, so this, this was a few, like a month ago, David and I were chatting through message. And he's like, cool. I saw you're doing a podcast. I said, yeah, you pick a movie. And so he picked a couple movies and one of them was uh, She's Gotta Have It. And then I had mistakenly told Alan that it was Do the Right Thing. So I, I mistakenly, yeah, I chose the wrong thing. Mainly because I'm actually not as familiar with She's Gotta Have It. Now I had seen the film before, but Do the Right Thing was one I've seen like half a dozen times. Whereas she's got to have it. I only recall seeing it one time before I rewatched it for this. So David, tell me a little bit about that kind of inspiration or like, what about she's got to have it sticks out for you. Uh, it, it, you know, just kind of give us a lay it out for us. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. I don't, it, it wasn't the first Spike Lee movie I saw either. Like I saw do the right thing. 
uh, and when I was in high school, like Inside Man was coming out and like that. So I saw more of his later stuff, you know. And then as I got more closer to, you know, moving to LA and getting more and more serious about film and studying film and directors, that's why I stumbled on it and or didn't stumble on it, but you know, found out about it or learned about it. And yeah. You you also you also gave me a a recommendation on the book. Yeah, the book. Right? And I so here's the deal. I tried to get it and then I realized as I was putting it in the cart, it was like yeah. 80 bucks i think they're hard to come by i don't know really hard to come by yeah because so i had seen the movie before and then i was at a different school in la and i was just going to the library grabbing stuff and there was this beat up copy of it at the school's library and i checked it out and i had never heard of it never seen it online anything and the book is basically it's it's like a three-part book the first part is an interview like a new uh magazine interview right before he's shooting school days. So this was his second or third feature after do the right thing, I think. And so it's young Spike Lee interview. It's, you know, like 50 pages long. It's just really cool, candid interview. They had. And the second part about uh, the second part of the book is his journal, his filmmaking journal from like idea to shooting the film. So, and it's, it's you know, hundreds of pages of just daily journal entries, all of his, brainstorming and ideas and talking to his cast and trying to hunt down the money for the to make the movie and everything just the entire filmmaking process and it's just it's insane it's awesome like it's really cool uh glimpse into what his world was like when he was trying to get it off the ground and coming off like failures before like he had it wasn't he didn't want it to be his first feature it was never planned on being his first feature he had another movie where the summer before that all the money fell through. And so you kind of, you get to learn more about that through his journals and just what he's saying, his attitude about it. And then the last section of the book is the script. And of course, as you guys know, seeing the movie, like it's unconventional storytelling structure. So it's really cool to see it on paper. You read about him talking about the script for months and months and months and months and months, and then finally seeing it on paper and just the way it's formatted and laid out, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like one that that any kind of aspiring filmmaker should should definitely try to get their hands on, as difficult yeah. as as it may be. Like, I, I wanted to get it, and then I was like, oh, geez, yeah. I couldn't I, I couldn't get it. So they had that one at the library, and then I found one on Amazon. It's pretty beat up, like yep. old. But uh, yeah, I've I've seen them on Amazon go anywhere fifty to eighty bucks. I don't yeah. know. I just yeah. uh, I just looked. At Amazon, you can get a used copy for 130 bucks. Wow! Yeah, it was it was the one. Yeah, it was this was a few weeks ago. I swear it was right around 90. So somehow it's jumped yeah. even more since the last over the last month. It's cool, but, and I I was reading it when I was making my like final film school movie, and it's just kind of something cool to go to when you're going through the you know similar process of making something from start to finish, and kind of say like, oh, you know, this is this is how this guy, his attitude towards it was and changed the way I would write notes, changed the way I'd journal to come up with ideas. I'd start kind of doing it the same way. Uh, Cause a lot of it is just, he's just piping in real quick. Like, here's a quick idea. I got to do this, 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 this next thing, next day, you know? So it's kind of scattered, but it's, uh, 
it's a huge resource for filmmakers for sure. I also know like a little while back, he came out with one of the master classes mm -hmm. Spike did in yeah. one of his first, the titles to one of his first uh, clips from the video is grab the camera and go. Like that's yeah. basically how you make the film. You just go. And yeah. I've always loved that because like the idea, you just, you just try it. You try to get whatever it takes, whatever it is. Yeah. So I've always liked his, his uh, attitude towards that. And it sounds like he did that a little bit with she's got to have it in a sense, you know, at least in the beginning, some of the research I did where he basically like it, this wasn't maybe his first uh, film that he was going to try to complete, but he just basically found a way to do it. And it looks like in, in the start of it, he got a lot of grants or at least a couple of grants. Yeah. It looks, it looks like New York state council on the arts and the Jerome foundation. And that's really hard. Like, if, yeah. like I've been, I've never written a grant, but I've been part of a grant writing process for a documentary that we, we worked, that we worked on. And it's hard. Like right, grant writing is not easy. So I already applaud him in that sense because writing a grant and getting $28,000 to start the film is, is, yeah. is pretty impressive. And I, I think some of the grants too, like he had other grants lined up that fell through in the middle of it because they were for the script that he was going to do. You know, like it was already agreed that he was going to do this different movie called uh, The Messenger about a bike messenger that's talked about in, it's talked about in the book a lot, but a lot of these foundations, when they found out he was no longer doing that movie, they pulled the money too. So then he had to go find other grants and, you know, apply to some of the major ones too. And it's crazy. Like, I can't imagine having that much weight on your shoulders trying money wise, you know, like really breathing down your neck, trying to finance a film and trying to make something that's as creative and out of the box as they were doing you know like inten intentionally doing too right. you know so so that's a so alan tell me a little bit on from your perspective it looks like david's gone in depth and like looked into the background of how the film was put together and how much effort spike put into it but where where's where do you sit on uh this particular film and maybe any other films that that spike's made over well, the course of the last 30 years really uh like i i saw um I saw the first half of Do the Right Thing. And that's just because <laughs> I got your message like when I was halfway through that's the movie. That's because I fucked up. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, actually, that's literally the only uh, introduction I've had to Spike Lee at all before this film. Obviously, I know who he is. I'm a huge basketball fan, so I know how, how uh, you know, how culturally he's just obsessed with basketball and, and basketball players and Michael Jordan and, of course, the Knicks and getting in fights with don't get us because because you so you know i'm a huge basketball fan and i know i know david is so yeah don't get us down we too can, far we, we could just totally yeah. straight up change this podcast to a basketball podcast right now seriously <laughs> yeah. uh so i mean but that's that's about it i just i knew who he was i knew he's a very well-respected filmmaker and it wasn't that i i made any conscious decision not to see his films i just never kind of got around to it i guess so this was yeah. really my introduction and I got to say, it's not quite what I expected. It's uh, it's a lot more uh, filmy than I expected, if that makes sense. Like, well, the thing I always, my impression of Spike Lee was that he did, it was a lot like atmosphere. Like, you got to feel the city and you got to feel the characters. Uh, I didn't ever get the sense, I've never really heard people call him very artistic uh, in what he does. It's more kind of about setting the atmosphere was my impression. And... I got to tell you, like, I, I think 
artistically, I think he he's got the chops. This is, de- I mean, obviously this is a first time feature. You can, you can kind of feel that in the movie, but overall, I think you can see the filmmaker he's going to become later on. No, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I, uh, cause the film really dives deep into some like intriguing, important topics and questions. Like it brings up a lot of stuff, like all things that, you know, like here we are three white men that we can discuss in complete depth. Right. Like, (laughs) like woman voices, black voices. So like all things that on a, on a, maybe a personal level, we're not familiar with, but I think what he does well for me as it gets into the film is, is makes it broader for everyone to at least uh, attach some kind of, it resonates with somebody somewhere even if you're not in that category, right? If you're not a woman and you're not black. Um, and I think he does that pretty good. It is a little more than just atmosphere. I think he plays with characters pretty good. Yeah, I, I he, uh, I, I found myself relating to actually a couple characters in this. And I was kind of surprised about that because we do come from two totally different worlds. And But I was, there were times when I was like, yeah, man, like I totally understand the frustration here. And we'll talk about that as we get into it. But I was, that was something I was a little surprised about. It does. There are elements to the movie where I'm, when I'm watching it, uh, I do get that, that hint that it's a first time filmmaker. I think you can always fall back to like some of the technical things that are going on that don't Mm. quite match up to maybe what you would see later with someone who's more experienced, even himself as he gets further along in his own portfolio. Like you start to see his ability to, to tell the story a little more fluidly from the technical standpoint. Um, so you always get that, right? Like when you watch a first filmmaker, you always kind of get a little bit of rudimentary vibe to what's happening from the technical side, whether that's the filming or the editing. But I think from a story and a character perspective, there's a lot of things going on, on here. I'd like to dive into a few of them. I like the ideological concept of Nola as a character. She's strong. She's powerful she's a decision maker she doesn't she's not kicked around i like that that seems almost a little out of place for something in the mid 80s to be made like you don't see a lot of films that are going to have a strong female protagonist that are that are powerful that are strong for her as an individual so i like that i think that resonates strong and that that concept resonates strong do you guys when you watched it even if that resonates, what was your overall impression of that character as a whole? Or kind of where did you fall in terms of the, the main protagonist, uh, Nola? I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said about her as a character. Like, I, I really did like her too. But I think by the end of the film, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like all the other guys in the movie too. I think any guy watching the movie is, is, has like a little bit of heartbreak. Like, a damn, like I love this character. But though dude wins, in this you know like that's just something that everybody watching you know just you know feels like you're gonna feel that and uh i think the way that it ended is perfect for me like i'm glad that it ended that way i, I think it she would have went and ran in the arms of you know jamie or mars or here like it wouldn't have that she wouldn't be the same type of character that we're talking about you know i don't think it would be something that people would talk about yeah, because in the beginning of the film, she's basically like the visual or the image is like she's in bed alone, mm-hmm. right? And it kind of ends that way too. She's in bed alone. And you've traveled through this entire journey. You've met her three lovers. 
right? And she's kind of, to me, when I watched it, I almost felt like what I would have seen in other movies, like she's kind of the man (laughs) In, in the sense of what we might stereotypically consider that guy who is just playing the field. Uh, I liked that she was kind of, it was kind of the, the reciprocate of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, but, but one thing that, that I'm going to call out, a, I don't, it's not even problems because I hate, I hate doing that. I really like doing like problems, but I love that concept of Nola as a character and it resonates strong. I have to say, and I'm not trying to knock the actress too hard, Tracy jo- uh, Johns. I didn't feel like her performance attached itself to that character. So like the character as it's written and it, and it, and it plays out in the story, super strong, super powerful. But for some reason, her performance didn't match that for me. That's like, that's one of the things in this movie that kind of it's, it's, it reminded me constantly throughout that this is definitely a first time uh, feature from a feature from a first time director with a very low budget because I really think the acting left a lot to be desired. It almost felt like stage acting at times where they knew already what the reaction was going to be before, you know, the, 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 the scene partner delivered the dialogue. Like it felt like it was coming. And that's, I mean, that's, that's totally fine. It's a first time feature, but I agree. It kind of took me out of the story a little bit. And she, I, I would have liked to seen her be more forceful. Like you saw some times with Greer where she did, and I like that. That's when I actually, because throughout the whole movie, I'm I was kind of pissed off at her the whole time. Like I'm like, dude, she's just leading these dudes on. This is bullshit. But uh, as we as we kind of go forward, and I see her get more forceful with Greer, I'm like, yeah, this is what this is what she needs. I, I'd like to see more of that from her. I like to see her push that further. Yeah, I agree with that. That's what I, that's what I was alluding to, which is like she doesn't have in her performance doesn't have the unapologetic, independent, I'm in your face, I'm doing what I want. And one of the things you said, Alan, that kind of stood out to me, which I thought about the same thing, which is it feels very theatrical in how it plays out. And the interaction between the characters and the performances feels very much like a play. Mm -hmm. And what you said about the anticipation of the responses, it's like, I don't know that they had, and and David could probably allude to this because he knows the backstory a little more, but it's almost they had time to rehearse and knew everything to the extent that how they were going to kind of pigeonhole themselves into what those responses might be. Yeah. Um, I think too, it it probably has a lot to do with, I there's times there's a couple long, longer takes of dialogue. There's one Nola sitting on the edge of the bed and it's like dolling into her. And you can tell from her performance that like, that's not, that's probably the the good take you know like they're shooting on film 16 mil with no budget like they probably like his hands are probably tied because he just has to use this take you know and but it happens periodically throughout the movie where there's a few times where it's like okay these guys probably didn't have like a whole lot of film a whole lot of you know the liberty to do so many takes or that he you know could do later on in his career obviously but yeah it's it's yeah, definitely the, evident. The 12 days shooting is pretty impressive. Where yeah. it, 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 Here's the thing. Uh, Alan and I had done a podcast a little while back, David, on 
kind of in some ways, one of Spike Lee's mentors, one of his people that he looks up to, which is Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he, his first film, uh, which Alan loves, by the way. Um, cannot stand that movie. It, it was very much pieced together and very convoluted and didn't entirely have a, a through line and it felt very mixed, right? It didn't have a strong, powerful kind of uh, over overarching theme. And this has a little bit more than that. So I applaud him in the sense that he was at least in a 12 days, quick budgeted film, able to still string something together that had a little more resonance than you yeah. can say Martin Scorsese's first film. Uh, who's that knocking at the door? But I, I will say this. I was a little worried there for a minute because it took me, it took a while for the story to really get going. I thought he was doing a Scorsese. Like I thought this was, I was like, I was very worried that this was turning into look who's knocking at my door because there's a lot of uh, kind of, um, artsy stuff thrown in there and it kind of it felt a lot like look who's knocking at my door where there's you know random photos thrown in and then you have this this random dance performance kind of in the middle and it, i was like man is this is this gonna turn is he because i know he loves scorsese so much uh and i was just worried i was worried that he was gonna imitate that but he he did it he pulled through i would say he definitely pulls through a lot stronger than scorsese yeah. did on, on his first film yeah no doubt. No doubt. You can say that again. If you haven't seen who, uh, look, who's knocking at my door, David, go watch Skip that it. one and Skip make it. the comparison. It sucks. She's got to have it and see which one's better. If you All need right. something to help you fall asleep, check go check out. that out. Like it's, it's, you yeah. would never believe Scorsese directed it. It's terrible. I hate it. I hate it so bad. So in the, in the storyline, we're basically following the story of this woman who has three lovers, this strong woman who doesn't really see her see, uh, ideologically doesn't, I would say she just doesn't believe in monogamy. Is that, is that unfair? I mean, she just doesn't. And, and, and is that an unfair way to, to kind of tackle the subject there? Or is that, is that what it is? I think, yeah, that's what it is. Right. I mean, right or wrong or bad or good. I'm not I, defining either or I'm just saying, I think her approach is like, she doesn't believe in that and she sticks to her guns that way. And so as the, as the story goes on, we get introduced to all the different male characters. Tell me a little bit about, I want to get your guys' thoughts and perspective on the, the good and bad of these male characters in the story, because they're very much different, right? So each character is, I don't want to, they're not stereotypical, but they all have their own, they're, they're independent in, in and of themselves, right? They all have their own kind of perspective. Uh, tell me which one, because you guys were mentioning before, I'll put you on the spot maybe a little, which one resonates or which one did you attach to as a viewer that, that felt, felt either not the most like you, but like that felt like the one you could most relate to? I think I could probably relate most to Jamie. Like I probably felt the most of the Jamie Nola storyline. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't really relate too much to the Greer and Mars side. I love Mars's character and I love yeah. their, you know, dynamic, but uh, yeah, can't relate. I can, too much. I can I may, see... Maybe I could have related at some point, maybe a few years ago, I could have related to the Mars, but I think I'm, this I'm... time around this, this viewing, it was more Jamie. I can see you as a, a bit of a, a falling into that category of a Jamie, a sophisticated, yeah. smart, sincere person. Everything yeah. that I'm not, basically. I'm, I'm Mars, straight up. <laughs> yeah, you got Mars. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, by the way, speaking of Scorsese, I got to show you guys this real quick. Ready for this? Oh, my God. Ooh. Gabe's got the mohawk going on. Yeah, but guess what it is? It's Taxi Driver. Yeah, Travis yeah. Bickle, baby. Yeah, is, is that why you did it? No, I just wanted to take it off because it was getting warm in my office. Alan, tell me about the you know the characters of the three men. Like, what were your uh, impressions of of those three, and, and what one did you like or dislike? Or so I mean, obviously, I'm most definitely a Greer. No, I'm just kidding. There's no way. Uh, uh, like I, we saw more of Jamie, so I felt like it was kind of being set up to have those two get together at the end. And so obviously, you know, I was kind of rooting for him, but man, David, I agree with you. Like Mars is a great character. I, when he's on screen, I'm having a good time. And even when Greer, I mean, you know me, I like the villains. I like, I like horror movies. I like messed up stuff. Even when, even though I don't like Greer, when he's on screen, I'm more engaged in the film. Like there's something about him. That's just, you just hate him so bad and he's so vain and so arrogant and you know it's just a show but it's still you like you're more more you're way more engaged when when he's on the screen and same thing with Mars Jamie was I mean he was kind of ho-hum I don't think I think performance uh kind of hurt that character a little bit too I'm not I wasn't thrilled with the performance of the actor but overall I mean you do root for Jamie right like you I mean that's that's kind of who you're hoping will will get her in the end yeah, because you kind of it's it's that it's that idea that you kind I think you would consider him the nice guy. So yeah, even you, though he was kind of a he was kind of a dick to her friend. It, it, he he was a little bit uh, he to was, the lesbian. He? He was yeah, little, you can leave that he, out. Yeah, he was a he's, total he's dick. A little, he's a little he's a little jealous. He's yeah. got a little rage in him, and that portrays itself later. So what I mean is the nice guy. Uh, initially to me, when I see the three characters, I say, Jamie is the nice guy that changes. Yeah, that does. There's a, <laughs> that changes dramatically because there's a scene at the end or near the end, I should say that becomes completely deplore. It's bad, yeah. right? It gets dark. <laughs> it gets really it gets dark. It's real yeah. dark. <laughs> it's really dark. They always tend to get these dark twists in there. Um, but I think what, what I did like about the characters is I think you're right. I think Mars to me, for me, Mars is the most relatable. Like <laughs> I'm not saying I'm Mars by any means. I just mean he's one that I would relate to uh, probably more than the other two. I think Greer is a bit of a, a pompous ass, right? So like, I don't really relate to that. And Jamie's a little soft for me. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. But, but I think the characters are interesting. What I did like that he, that, that Spike does in the film is like, they're all successful in their own right, except for Mars. And that's okay. He's, he's upcoming. <laughs> he's yeah. up and coming. But, like, but Jamie's successful. <laughs> Jamie's successful. It. Like, I guess, I guess he's an actor or he's in the, the arts. Like he's before, he's kind of a thespian in a sense. Uh, but he's, you would devise essentially that he might be successful in what he does. Uh, Greer is also kind of that entrepreneurial business. He's successful. I like that he built the characters that way, you know? Uh, Mars, I would call him like an up and coming comedian. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He's, yeah. he's, he's aspiring. But I like to see all successful characters. I didn't like to see, you know, sometimes, particularly in African American cinema, you're going to see particular stereotypes right there it's going to be the complete struggle it's going to be the the projects the the tough things that happen right all which are true but 
I like that he didn't really shed a light on a lot of that. And you just kind of perspectively saw the characters go through this personal story as they did it together. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I don't uh, know. I like that. I, I, I agree. And yeah. and they were so different. So, I mean, she, Nola definitely does not have a type. Like she does not at all. She just, it almost feels like she's just collecting dudes and she's, it's almost like she's collecting guys who will chase after her. Cause as soon as, they stop chasing her. That's when she kind of chases back a little bit. So I, to me, that's kind of what she's, what she's all about. But I, I agree. And I mean, my favorite line from Mars in the whole movie is when he, uh, his insult to Greer is that he's a Celtics fan. Cause I can relate to that <laughs> so much. <laughs> that's yeah. is that, that's what you would say to me, Alan. That's what I'd say to you. Yeah, exactly. We got too many Celtics fans here in Salt Lake. It's ridiculous. I got a feeling me and Spike wouldn't be friends because I you like, love Larry Bird. I'm a jazz guy. Yeah, true. Yeah, I'm a jazz guy because I'm from Utah, but my follow-up team is Boston, so we're probably not buddies. <laughs> Definitely yeah. not buddies. Probably not. <laughs> Albeit, though, I, I might have an edge on Chicago. He might hate the Bulls more than the Celtics. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> probably. Maybe. I mean, Look, Jordan, he, might, he Stone, might hate he might hate the Knicks more than both of them right now. Too. Well, that's probably true. Yeah, I think nobody can true. like the Knicks at this point in the game. <laughs> yeah, but I like anyway. I like the 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 characters. I like. I th- Look, you have an all black cast. You have all black stories, and I think that's a good perspective for anyone. It's different, right? For for someone like myself, it, it gives a it lends a unique storytelling perspective on things that uh, are not my experience so that's good and i like that he does that um i think that i want to ask you each a question uh what's the most captivating or the best scene in the film for you that stood out as you watched it that really resonated or didn't resonate and was really hard to watch or whatever it might be what's the best scene in the movie if you have to choose one Dave, we'll start with David. you if you if you got one. I don't know if one in particular, like to me, it felt like the three guys each had one one scene, like defining scene for each of them. And I'm trying to pick out which one to me was like the one. I love Mars's intro, just the, the long shot of him coming down on the bike with the music, and then the quick inserts. It's awesome. Like it's. The- Jordan's yeah it just turns it turns things on too it's like all right who is this guy let's go um and then Jamie's you know like the near rape scene you know his dark scene is obviously a huge powerful scene in the movie and for Greer I think Greer's was when he's folding his clothes and it's taking (laughs) a super long time they're going back and forth back and forth back and forth like it's almost too drawn out but it's enough to like I don't know. It just hooked me too for that character. So I'll give you three. I don't know which one out of those ones. But those are all pretty the, good. The Mars, the Mars intro though is still to me. Just, oh, it's great. It's I mean, that's super, super cool sequence. That's something I've never even seen this film. And I know about that, that shot because it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's super famous. It's, it's Mars Blackman, you know, like, uh, I, yeah, I agree. I, I forgot for Greer's intro. I was going to say Greer's intro for him was my favorite, but, when he's sitting in the car and he's just talking about how 
how much Nola yeah. worshipped him and everything. But I forgot about the part where he's folding all his clothes. Like that's yeah, that's pretty funny. I I like that a lot. Uh, I think for me the best scene or my favorite scene. I don't know if it's the best is Thanksgiving. I love that because it was the first time you see all three of those dudes together, and they're all so pathetic. They're all so pathetic. I felt so bad for them. Like I hurt for them. But I also was like, have some self-respect. Someone's got to walk out of that room. And then especially at the yeah. end where they're all lying around, just it's just like made me cringe. And it's just like, have a little self-respect, guys. Like, come on, get out of there. Like, don't put yourself through this. Don't subject yourself to this. Yeah. Yeah, that scene was interesting. I, I think if I was to choose one, that's actually the one I was going with too, Alan. And the reason is because I find it intriguing and frustrating that the three of them are in the same room and they're compatible. They're talking and Marge has given Greer a little bit of hell, um, Mm -hmm. which is funny in the way he kind of, kind of chides in on him and starts razzing him a little bit. But I thought that was, I I, I thought the same thing. Like, can one of you guys just stand up and get the hell out of there? I I honestly thought Jamie was going to leave at any moment. Like I thought he's the one, with the most self-respect that he's going to, yeah. he's going to bail at some point, but he never did. He was the one, like he was yeah. the one I think yeah. both Greer and Mars could relate to a little bit. They both had a little bonding thing with him. I think. Yeah. The, uh, the other scene. Yeah, they did. They, I mean, I think it's easy to, like we talked about to kind of jump into, to Mars character and whether you relate to him, he's fun and energetic to watch. So, Mars is always an easy, like you can, you, it's an easy drink. Oh know? yeah. Well, and Spike uh, Lee did a great job with that character too. You got to give him credit, like directing yourself and playing that flamboyant of a character. And I, I just, I, I loved it. I thought he did a great job. Yeah. Like getting into that one thing that stood out to me, and we'll get into that in just a second, because we're talking about him writing, producing, directing, editing, starring, all we'll get into that in just a second. One other scene that stood out to me, it may not be the best film, and this may seem uh, a bit strange, but when Nola calls Jamie on the phone after she's been thinking about Jamie, and she, she's, she calls him and says it's an emergency, you need to come over now. But here's the thing about the scene, and I don't mean the, 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 the subsequent scene, I loved, and I don't know why, Jamie's travel from him at his apartment to her apartment, which is basically a montage of photos that are out of focus and overexposed or underexposed of him going through the subway. Yeah. I don't know why, mixed with that jazz music or that little bit of flair to it, the background music, I loved that sequence. And I think she says, like, that was fast, like right after, you know, like it's just quick picture, picture, picture. Then that was quick. You know, it's right back into the movie. I, I don't know why it, because a lot of, I think you, it'd be easy to like have that pull you out of the film, but I, for whatever reason, it didn't, it didn't pull me out. And I also loved that Spike's dad was the composer of that score mm-hmm. as well, um, which was what I thought was, was, was really cool. Um, so that scene, for some reason, that little, that little montage just stood out to me. Um, the subsequent scene after is, of course, Jamie essentially rapes Nola. That's a weird, what was that change of that character? Because 
when we were talking about this or alluding to it a little before, like up until that point, you're kind of siding with Jamie, at least as the nice guy and kind of the guy that's a little more sincere and considerate towards women. And then all of a sudden that, that, that light switches and he turns into a bit of a monster. It, yeah. What was that about? It was a little scary there. I almost wonder what he's trying to say about men because it just, it almost felt like he, Jamie just had enough. Like he'd been put through the ringer with this girl. He obviously really cares about her. Uh, the other two, I'm not so sure they care about her as much as they think they do. I think they just want to win, um, especially Greer. But Jamie seems to really care about her. And it's almost like he just, he just, he, he was fed up and he just lost his mind. And I don't know if, if Spike Lee is saying that that's a potential in all men, or I don't know what it was. Cause even after the fact, Jamie was in, clearly embarrassed by it. Like when they later in a later scene, when they're in the park, he's clearly embarrassed by what happened. And, uh, I think he's ashamed of himself. So I don't, I don't really understand. It didn't fit the character either before or after, but I am glad that that Spike gave him some remorse later on because if he didn't have that remorse, I don't know. I I, I think it's almost a, a more. I mean, just kind of a disgusting movie at that point. Like I think we really need that from from kind of, from one of the protagonists. No, I, I that's what I I'm gl- I wanted to get your perspective on that because when that when his patience runs thin, and and rightfully it's it's a weird thing because in some ways. You're, 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 I don't want to say sympathetic, but you're understanding to the point that he's tried to give her an, a, a genuine relationship all along and she's constantly pushed him off and off and off and off again. And so there is that relatability. I think any red blooded male or any, 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 any male that's had a relationship can look at it and say, well, if, you know, someone strings you along for so long, there's a frustration. Now, it wouldn't lead to, to that you know, serious of a, of an action. But I think there's an interesting sympathetic nature to that character that I don't think entirely diminishes at that point. I think the remorse plays well later. Um, and you still kind of as violent as it is. And, 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 uh, as much as I would, of course, don't condone it. Like there's still something to the character there, uh, later on when he, when he shows that, that he did the wrong or Phil's kind of did the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. And I think too, like once that act happens, once that scene happens too, like he can know there's no longer going to be an ending where he gets her in the end or wins quote unquote, you know, like once that has happened, that line has been crossed, that bond has been broken, you know, whether it's said on screen by either of the characters or not either, whether it's remorse or, actually verbalizing it like we as an audience just the sub subtextually are like he's you know he can't win now like this this won't end happily for the two of them right yeah that's a good point and it kind of go ahead uh, in the journals too like that scene the way that it was originally written was that he starts like having really rough sex with her and she starts to like it like originally like she starts to like it and enjoy it and that makes him stop and just say like what the hell and and leave so he changed it to what it is now i and i i don't know like i don't know what like what maybe his notes he was getting or what to have it go that way but i mean that's interesting 
interesting though, because if that's if he originally planned for it to go that way, then we continue to sympathize even more with right. Jamie with the with the yeah. with that with the, whereas the way he went, we kind of pull our emotion off of him because right. we're not you know we're not we're not we're not backing him up as much as we were before. So that's and interesting. It, yeah, it's like very important for Nola to be the main focal point of the movie too you know for her, for it to be her story and to be about her change and her you know her life you know so I'm, i think going with what he went with and having it be the way that it is kind of puts that stamp on there yeah and that, that's the one thing and i was kind of putting in my notes was like i possibly would have wanted more perspective from nola like I felt like one thing is, is kind of intriguing or I thought is, was as well done as each of the male characters were for who they were for the story. I thought that it almost did risk a little bit of convolution. So we talked about Scorsese's film kind of being all over the place, his first film. And this doesn't quite do that, but it almost becomes too convoluted with all the storylines. I would have liked to have seen a lot more, perspective from nola directly all the way through the film yeah and not had so many of the fourth wall breaks where mars talks about who nola is and jamie talks about who Nola is i think they're well done and i think they're creatively done for a fourth wall break but i would have liked to see her more uh expressive and more perspective from her versus the men to be honest if i'm if i'm not mistaken we only get her breaking the fourth wall at the beginning and the end right like we she yeah. doesn't do it at all in the and middle there's, and david correct me if i'm wrong or alan there's a does she go to a therapy session yeah she does and so there's a little there but i don't know how poignant it is or how strong but and we get more like from her therapist to the camera fourth wall too so but she does it's kind of funny I can't remember if it's the beginning, very beginning or the very end. She says like, this is um, she something along the lines of like, this is what a story of, from all the people who think they know Nola Darling. So she kind of tells you like, you're not going to get my side of it. You're going to get everybody else's side of it. And um, the other like big inspiration that, you know, from first Spike Lee for, for this movie was Rashomon, uh, Kurosawa's movie. Like he's a huge Kurosawa fan of that movie in particular, which is people on trial, you know, like it's confessionals. You're not getting the full story. You're getting just sections of just the story from, from different people. And I didn't know when I first saw this movie, I had, I didn't know the connection there until later I read the book and then rewatched it. And now it's like, Holy shit. Like this is definitely very Kurosawa and structure and of like how the story is being told. And, but yeah, I, I, I wish too, that there was a little bit more Nola. Uh, well, when you say it that way, I think, yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting like side piece to the history of it is, is the pull from uh, Kurosawa and, yeah. and the interesting viewpoints of all, you know, and, and if you're right. I mean, the idea that at the beginning she does say, Hey, this is not my story or I'm not the one that's going to be telling it in full. Right. Um, but I think I just, I still think I would have liked to have like her, her, uh, her opinion a little stronger throughout. 
Yeah, yeah it almost felt like the, the the center point really became the side. I don't want to call them side characters, the supporting cast. I should say it kind of felt like it became about those three guys, and we're not we're not really talking about Nola anymore. We're talking about their feud, which honestly I kind of feel is more interesting. But if you're gonna have her be the center, you know, the central protagonist, I would like to see more of her story, like more of her. Right. I mean, like we said before, I'd like to see her be more forceful, more, uh, more. Yeah. You know, I, it's clear she's independent. I want to see her really just ensure that everyone knows how independent she is. Absolutely. Can we talk. Let's talk real quickly about the color sequence. And maybe David can shed some, shed some light on this. What the hell was the color sequence doing in this movie? Yeah, uh, it, it made no sense to me. Um, I think I had ideas of what it meant, but I uh, the only thing that I could think of, of course, is is if you were if you were uh, shooting on film, of course, black and white would be cheaper than color film. But why just the one color sequence? I, I don't understand it. Did, did well, you have any before, insight on that one? David, before us? you go, I, I want to I make sure I understood it right. They were doing a Wizard of Oz thing to get into this, right? Like the there's no place like home thing. And then it goes to yeah, color. Uh, th- I don't know if they were. So if, I got that. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I don't know if it's an homage. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I don't know if you have insight on that. But I would, the whole time, I, I mean, I was fighting the urge to fast forward through that that sequence. That yeah. and I'll let David go. One more thing, that that was I got the homage, and it also felt very, of course, musical. So there's that there's a musical element to it, you know, like the classical Hollywood musicals from the '50s, and and it felt like that. And then of course the uh, turn to color, like the Wizard of Oz. I got those kind of homages in there, but I just sometimes homages don't work. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think for it the for it being in color like a reason for it being in color i don't know if there's a, something behind it like a hidden meaning or something that he wants to say by putting it in color from like everything that i've read and just watching i think it's just between him and his dp like hey i think we should shoot this sequence in color they weren't gonna i know they weren't gonna shoot it in black and white like the whole movie that was something that uh ernest dickerson was like hey, we should shoot this in black and white because i it was just kind of something that they collaborated on. I know he wanted like the Ruby slippers to be in color. Like that was something that he kind of, since he's shooting the movie in black and white, he's not going to be able to have the slippers in back in color or be in color. So wanted to do some sort of color blast instead, but I don't know. I don't know what the scene is there technically for. Like to me, if I had to guess, I would think this is like Spike Lee, like, you gotta imagine like what 20 21 year old spike lee like this is his idea of like the perfect dream date that he probably would love to take someone on you know maybe like i don't know or that- i know his his family's very into music his dad has been a musician forever and composing and so a lot of people playing the instruments are friends of his dad or or bands and people he knows around Brooklyn that he's grown up with and stuff. So I think it was just something fun that he really wanted to do. I don't know if it's important or drives the story forward or does those things, but I really don't know. I think it's a distraction. I think what happened is he got got an extra grant 
Yeah, uh, exactly. He's like, we got another 10 grand. Let's shoot this part in color because we can uh, process so and develop much coverage, in, in color. Too. Yeah, there's so much a lot coverage, of coverage in that scene. Like from every angle, and it was like, where did they get all this colored film reel? <laughs> and meanwhile, That's where like, my mind goes is 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 as the producer mindset of like it's going to cost me three times as much if I shoot this in color mm-hmm. versus, and I try to process and develop in color than black and white. So he must've got an extra grant. That's yeah. what I think. Well, and meanwhile, he, they could have used a lot of, a lot more coverage for some of the dialogue. Like I understand, you know, right. the instinct of wanting to have long takes, but sometimes like, let's just change it up a little bit. Just give me a back and forth. <laughs> like just give me a talking heads edit, please. It's just, it's a little too long at times. Yeah, there's uh, some editorial things there. And that goes back to those technical things that we were excusing in the beginning. Like they're just going to be there as a first time filmmaker, because like you said, Alan, they're not going to have the coverage necessary. And so editorially, they're not going to have the options. And I agree. Maybe we could have spent some money on getting additional coverage in other areas, but it's all moot point anyway. It doesn't matter, but it's still fun to talk about. (laughs) Um, But tell me, uh, I like, look, I like Spike's vision. Ultimately, like I like his vision. I like his unique uh, value that he that he places on on the film um, as a as a precursor to do the right thing, which is one I'm more familiar with. Like even in that sophomore uh, effort that uh, of do the right thing, man, he he grew a lot in that time frame. Because if you watch something, we talk about coverage and like watch do the right thing, and there's coverage everywhere. Like it's just, there's low angle, high angle, side profiles. There's, it's all over the place. I think his growth as a filmmaker is, is pretty significant in such a short period of time. Uh, so he definitely learned a lot from, from She's Gotta Have It, as you would expect, because, and we were alluding to this, he was everything. The writer, the director, they didn't have a first AD. He was the first AD. He was... He, he pulled his sister in to be one of the characters. He pulled his dad to do the composing. So everything that it took, I love that determination and his ability to like stick to what he knows and complete a vision all the way through. And so I applaud him for that. Uh, and still like, even, even if, if his vision is who he is as a African-American growing up in Brooklyn, like he still makes it appealing for a larger audience that doesn't have that same experience. And I like that he did that. Whether that's his intention or not, uh, that's how I felt when I walked out. And I like that he shed light on certain perspectives and certain lives of these characters. So applause to him for, for coming up with uh, the determination to even get a movie made in the first place and then second place to actually get the success that he did. Tell me a little bit about we'll – kind of, we'll kind of start slowly rounding it out here. But, but David, tell me um, your final summation – and then give me a rating. This is how we do it. We're basically like uh, one through 10. Um, and then we attach some kind of uh, prop to the end of that. So, you know, 8.5 Air Jordans. Um, give me your summation of the film, uh, what you think about Spike, and she's got to have it. And then give me a rating one to 10. Mm, I think that the movie itself for first time filmmakers for young filmmakers for people that are getting ready to think about making movies so i think it's something that people should see you know definitely um and i would suggest 
the book as well, even if it's something you don't think will be appealing to you, whether, you know, you don't think you're the right audience for it or whatever. It's still just something I think is important for filmmakers to see and to watch. Um, I love the, I actually love the cinematography in it too, just from my background, loving black and white street photography. It has that high contrasty stuff in there. And I just, I really dig it. And um, Spike Lee, like, I'm not a huge like fanboy by any means, but I think he has in his library, you know, there's some super important movies and some movies that I always go back to. Um, Mo Better Blues, the Denzel Washington movie. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that's a movie too where I confidently think that the first, I think, 10, 13 minutes of that movie is like the best character introduction that I've ever seen in a feature film. So, and that was shortly after this. You know, it was within his first five movies. Like you said, he really kind of got a grasp on his vision pretty quickly like once he got the wheels going so for this one though she's got to have it i would give it a uh let's see 7.8 uh seven point eight Eric jordans yeah okay and and, and you, got, jordans. you got the fitting nike or the fitting uh nicks hat on excuse me yep <clears throat> just for today just for today <laughs> yeah so you Going with the 7.8. 7.8, I think. Alan, is that high? I for me that's high. I don't I don't although the last couple movies we've done, I've I've gone pretty high. But for me that's high. I'm a I'm a mean grader, man. I'm it's a good thing yeah. I'm not a teacher because I would be ruthless. I'm soft. <laughs> David knows. I'm soft. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. 7.8's good. That's fair. Alan, give me a summary of Spike and the film, and then give me a rating one to ten. Uh, I, I liked, okay. So I watched, like I said, I watched the the first half of do the right thing. That's like the, the movie that people really love of his from what I can tell. I actually like this more than at least the first half of do the right thing. I, I didn't finish it. I am going to go back and, and finish it, but I, I enjoyed it a lot more. Um, there are some things that kind of took me out of it. I didn't, I had no idea that all three of these dudes were dating her at the same time until later on in the movie. Like I thought he was go he was doing like a Tarantino type thing, like a nonlinear storytelling. So like when she would be on a date with Greer, I thought they were jumping back in time. And I thought that the Jamie thing was like the the net the, the the person she's dating in the present. Uh so that was a little confusing when it all kind of came together. Um again, some of the technical stuff we talked about kind of took me out of it. There's some weird edits in here where he repeats the same shot back to back for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, and then that the color sequence kind of took me out of it. But other than that, I, I love the story. I love the characters. I love to see the act a little bit better acting, but I understand, you know, first time feature, you got to you go with who you got and uh, who will take the money. And so I totally understand that. Overall, I think I'm going to go with a 6.7. And I'm going to cheat this one. Because this is from Do the Right Thing, a six point seven scuffed hundred eight dollar Nike Air Jordans. Hundred dollars, but eight dollars with tax. Six point seven of those. Those are not just any. By the way, those are not just anybody's Air Jordans. Those are 
Gustavo Frings, Air Jordans from Breaking Bad. Yeah. That's uh, really? Carlo Esposito, oh, the yeah. actor. There's a lot of Oh, it is. You're too. right. Holy shit. I it's, didn't even it, notice that. It's Gustavo hey, Frings. The only reason I know that is because I'm a mad Breaking Bad fan. And as I was rewatching it like you last last week, I was like, oh, shit, that is that's Giancarlo Esposito. I knew yeah. he looked familiar, but man, he does not. Man, he's got a lot of range. I'll just say that as an actor. Wow. I love that scene, though. That scene's hilarious. Oh, it's great. It's funny. And of course, the guy's wearing a Larry Bird shirt who scuffs his Jordans. <laughs> it's the best. It's, it's my favorite. I'll kind of give a little summary. I wanted, I wanted to dive into just a couple pieces of trivia. And David, if you have additional stuff, throw it in there because you've read the book and you're more familiar with it. I thought this was interesting. There was a reflection by, um, by Spike uh, a few years back. And he said, if I was able to do, I have any do-overs, uh, he would take out the scene, the, 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 the rape scene with Jamie. He'd take it out of the film. Interesting. And his, his, his quote said, it made light of rape. And that's one thing that I would take back. I was immature. And I hate that I did not view rape as the vile act that it is. So well, I don't know. Here's my question. If he was just plugging. If he was just plugging, she's got to have it in the next flick series to try to soften the blow. But uh, he he didn't. He wanted to. He was, said he would have taken that back or edited out that. That's. Well, what do you guys think? So how do you feel narrative? about that? Well, narratively, we had, a, we, we had a discussion on it. Narratively, what do you guys think? I mean, to me, I think it fits the story very well. I mean, it may, it's a little out of character for Jamie, but it is a, a manifestation of him boiling over with this frustration. Again, de very deplorable. But to me, like David, I think you said it perfectly when you said it makes it okay that she doesn't get back with Jamie. Like it, you know, like it, it's actually kind of, it's good that she, that in the end she leaves him. Yeah, I, I, I would agree too. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what would go in place of it, but I understand where he's coming from, you know, like I'm sure he sees that now and realizes, okay, maybe that was, a little too much, especially because how we all felt, you know, we all liked that character up until that point. You know, that kind of changes the tide of everything. So I can see why he would regret it or kind of want that back. And, but yeah. So another thing, because this, there are elements to the film that, I mean, it's very overtly sexual, right? Um, and in the mid, here's something interesting that I found on the, I mean, it's just easy research, but I did find it interesting because uh, the Criterion Collection, Alan. So, so David, un, unknowingly, I've selected like four films that are part of the Criterion Collection over the last few podcasts. Mm. And David, you have chosen also a film that's part of the Criterion Collection because in the mid 90s, the Criterion Collection released the film on Laserdisc. Laserdisc. Ah. So they, they don't have rights now to the DVD, but in its own way, She's Got to Have It is part of the Criterion Collection. There we go. On yeah. Laserdisc. On Laserdisc. Only. Not DVD. Do you not she's Got to Have It, Twister, <laughs> yeah. and whatever yeah. other, what other Laserdisc there was. Independence Day. Apollo yeah, 13. I know that. Do you guys remember when Laserdisc yeah. came out and it was like, this is going to be the future? And like all my friends' just, dads went out and yeah. bought these huge Laserdisc it's like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. 
we had like the rich family member that had the yeah. laser disc. And then you'd, you'd have to, Ooh. halfway through, you'd have to flip it over like a record. Yeah. It's ridiculous, <laughs> man. <laughs> You're like, hold on, guys. We're uh, intermission here. Yeah. I think, uh, what was that? The Right Stuff, that movie about uh, uh, launching people into space. I think my dad, like we were way late on the laser disc thing, like right when it was going out. And because uh, it was finally affordable, my dad. That's they're cheap, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was like super cheap. And my dad got it. And uh, the right stuff had like four discs. So it was, I mean, it was just like a CD box set or something. But you have to flip it over. So it took like, to watch, you can just sit down and watch a movie. You had to do some work to do it, man. You got to get off the couch. You got to stumble yeah. over to the laser disc. You got to flip it open, turn it over. It's ridiculous. No one wants to go turn over a laser disc when it's the, hitting the climax of the second act. Exactly. No one wants to do that. <laughs> yeah. The reason Not I bring it up, though, stuff. is because the laser disc is the only release of the film that has an NC-17 rating. Ooh. And that's the director's cut. So that's Spike's cut. And that's including sexual content that was not cut to obtain an R rating because what had happened that uh, I saw a quick interview with Spike that uh, the MPAA actually called him while it was in theaters and said, you got to cut out a couple pieces of this film to bring it down to an R rating. Hmm. So this, this was after it had been released in like one theater somewhere in New York. So inter- anyway, Criterion Collection tie-in, Laserdisc tie-in. There you go. Director's cut. Um, 1986 Cannes Film Festival Award of the Youth Foreign Film Spike Lee won so pretty big award to have won as a young filmmaker probably one of the biggest awards you can get (laughs) Um, 1986 Los Angeles Film Critics Award also won New Generation Award so he came out hot like this is a a first time feature and he was 1987 Independent Spirit Awards won so he was clean and slate on this film. Yeah. And uh, alluding to what I said earlier, I mean, I think that's what makes him kind of one of the most prolific and independent voices, particularly like an in independent filmmaking. Um, and I'm not a fanboy either. I'm not a, out there. I haven't even seen all of his work, right? I've probably seen like a, a half a dozen of the however many films he's even made. I don't know off the top of my head. But going in and watching this again, um, talking it through with you guys, uh, looking at uh, some of the, the, the other critics as well and some of the other review aggregators, uh, Rotten Tomatoes got it at 91%. So kind of, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty high. That's really Alan. high. That's really um, high. And then IMDb comes in at 6.7 out of 10 with about 9,500 reviews. That's a big difference. Yeah, there's a lot of IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. They're usually kind of close, but it seems like movies like this kind of have that huge. And they just, yeah, there is a disparity, but also just to, to the 91%. And that's the that's critics, right? Cl- it's the critical percent, right? But, and that's what we're going for. But the audience scores it at a 73, so. Mm take it for what it's worth. And I'm not overly uh, hyped on, on ratings and stuff. Although I do like to kind of gauge fun for fun, have, have, you know, like have a rating out there. So um, 
man, a lot of things going on in the film. Um, I think that ultimately, uh, like I said, I like his vision and I like the ultimate characters as a first time filmmaker. I love that he put all the work in that he did. Um, his, his mantra of just like grab a camera and go, like, I love that. And, uh, pretty intriguing characters, uh, mostly, um, all the way through. I agree, David. I think the cinematography, uh, is, 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 is fun to watch. Like it's not perfect. And, uh, and that's kind of what makes it good in some sense. Like I like sometimes the imperfections of things. Um, one of my favorite parts in this movie is actually, I shouldn't say one of my favorite parts, but it is the best part of the color sequence is at the end when she's blowing out the candle. And you can tell it's a blown take because the, the, the candle pops back up. It's one of those relighting candles. And she falls down, starts laughing. You hear other people laughing off screen. And uh, Jamie just looks right dead on at the camera. And it was like it was a fun little moment. And I like that he kept that in there. Yeah. yeah, there was some interesting, there was a keep there. And then also when Greer gets in the bed with her after folding all his clothes and there's a, about, I like editorially being an editor, that being my, my main trade. I liked the, although I thought the rhythm was off a little. Um, yeah. <laughs> but why? See, uh, that, but I, liked, I didn't like, I liked that the jump one. cuts. I, I like the jump cuts and the, and the, the double up on one take. He does the Greer getting in bed and then re and then replays Greer getting in bed again. See, but why though? They why do, did he do it there? something like, I don't know. I don't know. There, it, there it, was some. Oh, go ahead. No, you you got it. I was just gonna say there was some some tasty L cuts and J cuts too with audio where you like you'd hear Mars talking, but it's on Jamie by himself, and then into the next scene. Like he had a very intuitive way of editing, and then that stuff where we're saying, "But why?" Like he was just doing what he wanted to do, you know, like slicing exactly. and dicing film and like having fun with it which is cool to watch, you know? Like, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure all these first time filmmakers have maybe not journals and stuff, but you know, they probably went through that same, put in that same type of work, did a lot of these things that he did, but the only difference is like, they didn't write a book about it and they don't talk about it. You know, like he did do those things and his filmmaking to me, that's, he does what he wants to do. Like he does whatever he wants to do for the audience that he wants it to go to, you know, like, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. There's no, there's no compromises in, in what he wants to do. And I, I agree with you, David. Mm -hmm. I think that's what is intriguing to me. And even if the imperfections are there or we ask ourselves why, or why would you do that cut? Or why would you leave that? What I think is actually the end of the take. They just didn't yell cut what you're alluding to Al, uh, Alan with the, the candle. He just left it in for the shit of it. He's like, I'll just leave it in because I can, and I'm not going to compromise what I think is best for this story. I, that, that part you have to applaud and you have to love. Um, I think there's one other scene. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. There's a scene that uh, we were talking about earlier with Greer in the car where he pulls up in the nice car and then just starts talking to the camera. I really love that scene too. But that scene starts where it's like the camera operator is just, just walking a camera out into a driveway, just boom, 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 and sits up next to the car. And then it's a great scene, you know, like we don't even notice the fact that it looks like the guy's just kind of toting this camera along, you know, these dirty dolly shots that aren't even really dolly shots. Like, I don't know. There's something cool about it. Something cool about watching a good scene play out with maybe not 
traditional or polished camera moves or yeah because we know it can go one of two ways it can go really bad or it can be acceptable and in his case it's acceptable it adds to the charm of the film what's that it adds to the charm of the film exactly um one thing i wanted to quote real quick and then i'm going to throw my score at you uh my rating new york times wrote that uh this film along with um Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise uh, brought in the American independent film movement of the 80s and was groundbreaking film for African-American filmmakers and a welcome change in the representation of blacks in American cinema, depicting men and women of color, not as pimps and whores, but as intelligent upscale urbanites. So I like that. That was good. That was from New York Times. So overall, like 12 days to shoot this thing, 175,000. well, I mean, it's it's there. I mean, there's pieces to it. Um, is it that thing where you're going to watch on a constant basis? Not for me, but I would rewatch it. And so that's the oftentimes the delineator for me is like, would I rewatch this movie or would I just kind of let it float off into space? And for me, I would rewatch this film. If you know, I, I wouldn't have a problem rewatching it. I'm going to come in. So we, so David, you had a seven point eight. Seven point eight. Alan, you had a 6.7. You guys might hate me on this one. You're going Uh, high, aren't you? I know you're going high. (laughs) No. Oh, you're going low. If I'd probably I look, I'm gonna come in a little bit hard and a little bit harsh. Uh I'm going I was gonna go a six point five. I go a six point five, three men and a lady. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah 6.5 is where i'm gonna come in on this but i i agree with with david is that um anybody aspiring and anybody who's who loves film like they should watch the movie like point blank period you should watch the movie uh for all those things that we alluded to and discussed which is you're gonna learn from it i love the idea that there's a book i haven't read it i also that's pretty cool because most of the time you don't get that inside perspective from filmmakers in that depth. So I'm intrigued to find this book first and not have to pay like, yeah, it's a collector's item. Now. My child's college tuition for it. Yeah, I know. I'm, I didn't, I had no idea there was a book about this and I'm dying to read this now. I gotta, I gotta One book that I always up. refer to students that, that I have is, is cause I, it's the editing, but it's in the blink of an eye by Walter Murch. And that has a little bit of, it's not quite the same as what you're saying with this one, David, but it's got a little bit of that. And it only costs $5 on Amazon. Ah. Yeah, that one's cheap. I got it sitting on my bookshelf right now. Spike, Spike's, Spike's got the, he's got the market on this. There must just not be a lot of copies of this book or something. I don't know. And yeah, I'm sure it's out of print, print too. Yeah, it's got to be. Thanks for joining us, David. And uh, thanks for... Of course, bring it insight, man. It's it's good to see you. Yeah. First off, you too, man, for sure. And uh, I I really hope that things get back into the the proper mix for you, so Me you can too. get out of this damn quarantine. How's the documentary coming? I saw the um the it's clip good. that you sent. Yeah, we've got. We were gonna film at uh, an Iron Man in Ireland in August, but obviously that's canceled now. So that's 
getting moved to August of next year. So between now and then, we're just just going to relax, kind of reassess things. We reassess what we can do over the next year. Still have a lot of interviews to do. Uh, my dad's neurologist has agreed to be interviewed, so we'll interview him as soon as we can. Um, hopefully soon, like hopefully within the next few months. Um, it'll just depend on, you know, when things open up. But my and my brother is at home right now with my mom and dad up in Portland, so he's going to do a lot of filming while they're quarantined, hanging out, just kind of because people with MS, immune stuff, they're yeah. trying to you know, kind of stay put too. So stressful, but nothing's really uh, – it's kind of, I mean, it's a huge climax for a documentary, really, you know, it's a huge plot point, you know, getting ready, getting ready, getting ready, doing all these other races, then all of a sudden COVID hits, which I'm sure will be the plot point for plenty of documentaries over the next five or six <laughs> years. But yeah, but for ours, it'll work out at times. Yeah. This is uh, David, Alan and Gabe with the Tame Appet podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go check us out at tameaperture.com for previous episodes and also to give suggestions on future episodes. This is tameaperture.com signing out. Thanks, everybody. Tame Aperture podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.